It's October 1st, 1847, and there's an astronomer on a rooftop scanning the skies with her telescope. What is called sweeping, moving the telescope side to side across the sky, just observing. Looking for a comet. And then she saw it. From the studios of Cincinnati Public Radio, I'm your host, Dean Regas, and this is Looking Up. The show that takes you deep into the cosmos or just to the telescope in your backyard to learn more about what makes this amazing universe of ours so great. Through space exploration, we continue to propel ourselves along the path of knowledge and comprehension. By studying comets, we may unravel many questions about the early history of our sun and solar system. The origin stories of astronomers so often are wrapped around comets, these nighttime visitors that just hang there, kind of ominously, kind of amazingly. I can remember my first real amazing comet that I saw, which wasn't Halley's Comet. I was kind of disappointed by Halley's Comet. People out there that are that old probably think the same thing. I want to give you an update on this comet Hayakutake. It was a comet in 1996 called Hayakutake that really got me. We have uh, had several reports now that the comet has been sighted uh, through binoculars uh, here in the Louisville area. I really wasn't into astronomy at that point in my life, but this comet appeared. And I was mesmerized by this thing. It's just this little bluish light. Just a comet head visible at this point. That you could see and not see it at the same time. And it was without a telescope, without binoculars. This is kind of how I got started in astronomy, was seeing that. So how do you find a comet? Boy, I wish I had better tips for you. Because we have had a comet drought that we have not had a significantly bright comet in the sky since 1996. We've had some pretenders that have come along that we thought would be bright enough but never made it, and some that claim to be bright but weren't. And so, yeah, we're due. Hello, how are you doing? Hi, Dean. I'm great, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Our guest this week is the acclaimed author Maria Popova, her decades-long blog, The Marginalian, is a love letter to science and a self-described record of reckoning. Her LA Times award-winning book, Figuring, spotlights Mariah Mitchell, the United States' first recognized female astronomer and the subject of today's episode. Glad to talk to you today. This is going to be fun. Thank you guys for uh, caring about Mariah Mitchell. Oh, definitely. We're going to dive into uh, the life and works of Mariah Mitchell, who is, uh, you know, arguably the first woman in the United States officially recognized as an astronomer. And, and so for folks that might not be as familiar with her, what are what are her major accomplishments or what are the things that she did that stand out to you? Well, classically, she's celebrated as the first professional female astronomer in the United States. She was also the first woman hired by the U.S. government for a, what they called a specialized non-domestic skill. So she was hired as a computer of Venus uh, doing very complex 
astronomical calculations um, to help sailors navigate the world, basically a one-woman GPS system. She was the first woman admitted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In fact, when I visited her childhood home in Nantucket, which is now a museum, the certificate of admission hangs on the wall, and on it, the word sir is crossed out, as is the word fellow, and written in pencil over it is honorary member, because they just didn't have the language for the certificate to apply to a woman. And she also taught astronomy at Vassar College for a long time. She was trained as an astronomer, but she was really a pioneer of what we now call astrophysics because she incorporated very advanced mathematics in her curriculum at a time when Harvard had dropped the mathematics requirement past the freshman year. So the men getting educated in science at Harvard were getting a much inferior education. And in fact, Harvard eventually copied her curriculum and she just changed the course of higher education for the whole country. And the women who graduated out of her program, it's safe to say, are the world's first class of what we now call astrophysicists. Well, so let's go back to October 1st, 1847. And mm -hmm. uh, this was the, the date where Mariah Mitchell uh, discovered a comet. Can you set the scene a little bit for us and, and describe the night of her discovery? So when Mariah was 12, the King of Denmark announced this big prize, a, a gold medal worth 20 ducats, which was a lot of money, for the first person to discover a new telescopic comet, which is actually it's quite a challenging thing to do because you have to observe very patiently for a very long time. You have to be familiar with everything else that is already there in the sky in order to recognize this new apparition. And so between the time she was 12 and the time she was 29, that October day in 1847, she went up to her roof every night and swept the sky. And then that night, she was having dinner with her family. They had moved from their little house to a, a, a dwelling on top of the Nantucket Bank building. So she excused herself from dinner, as she did every night, and took her telescope, hauled it up to the observation deck on the roof, and started what is called sweeping, moving the telescope side to side across the sky, just observing. And then she saw it. And she was kind of startled. She didn't, she wasn't sure that it was a new comet, but, but she was so intimately familiar with the objects in the sky that, that she could tell was something new. She called her father up and they looked at it together and they were sure it was indeed a new telescopic comet. So then he begged her to announce it as her own discovery, and she was very reluctant. She was raised in the Quaker tradition. She was just constitutionally a very humble person, and she felt it was an act of ego, and so she didn't want to do it. Her father then persuaded her that it would be really a patriotic act. You know, a great discovery claimed for American science, which was fairly young and unproven. So she agreed and they wrote a letter announcing the discovery and they put in the post, 
However, living on Nantucket, a little island beholden to the weather, a storm interfered and the mail was delayed for two days in the course of which another astronomer in Europe observed the comet and promptly announced it and his letter got to the King of Denmark. Eventually, when Mariah's announcement made it to Harvard and the head of the Harvard Observatory then corresponded with Europe, there was this beautiful and very moving act of solidarity by the global scientific community saying, well, wait a minute, she shouldn't be discounted from the competition on a technicality. She saw it first. The king had already awarded the medal to the Italian astronomer who announced it two days later, but uh, it, there was this beautiful consensus that she was the one to to actually get the prize, and, and she did. They gave her the medal, and it was a really kind of landmark event. You know, she was a woman, women had no access to higher education at the time, and um, it was also a triumph for American astronomy, and that's what paved the way for her being hired by the U.S. government. It's such an amazing thing to think about this for, you know, 175 years ago that the the lines of communication and this, you know, this new age of, of science in, in the United States. And man, it makes me feel good that it worked out, that everybody did the right thing. It's, I don't know, it's, it seems <laughs> like it's almost too good to be true. Well, I mean, one thing I do love about science is that that people who end up doing science with their life really do care about the truth, right? So there is a kind of underlying moral value system beneath that. And, and the truth was that she made the discovery first. And I think it was natural for scientists to say we have to honor that because that's just reality. Well, so all this happened 1847. She discovers this comet. How how old was she at that point? She was 29. So that was her breakthrough, basically. Or had she already started doing computing and other things before that? C computing was just a job she had for the government later, but she had fallen in love with astronomy when she was 11 years old, and she observed an annular solar eclipse. And that was it. She was just sold for life. Her father had converted a former closet into a little study for the 10 Quaker children to share, but she ended up being the only person in it, studying math, studying astronomy. There was a little note card that she would hang on the door that said, Miss Mitchell is busy, do not knock. She'd been doing astronomy and thinking about astronomy for 18 years before she discovered the comet. So she sounds like she was young, but she got a very early start. So let's fast forward here a little bit in her life to uh, where you describe in your writings these dome parties where Mariah and other astronomers, they, they gathered to play this game, uh, this writing game about astronomy and on scraps of used paper. Uh, what, what, can you tell us a little more about these gatherings, these dome parties? So she, um, when she started teaching at Vassar, she was given housing at the university, and it was in the same building as the observatory. So she slept in a little cot in the observatory. And she used to host these, as you say, dome parties for her students. I think she did it in part because her curriculum was so rigorous. She wanted to create something delightful for the young women to kind of take joy in science and not just this kind of 
intense, you know, academic rigor. And so she invited them evenings to render in poems some of the things they had been learning or observing, some of the actual science they were working with. And that came very naturally to her because poetry was her great love. She had been a heavy, heavy reader of poetry since she was a little girl. She worked for many years as head librarian at the Nantucket Athenaeum, their big cultural institution, and she just read and read and read. She wrote an incredible paper about the astronomy of uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. And she understood that poetry is another way of paying attention to the world, just as science is. And so, yes, she would host these dome parties and the young women would, would write poems, some of them very kind of cheeky and not poetically, you know, high quality, but delightful about astronomy and some of them quite good. And then you learn more about her life story. And, and so what do you believe Mariah Mitchell's story can teach not only the professional astronomer, maybe even the backyard astronomer of today? Well, I think the largest thing is that the the cosmos belongs to everyone. I mean, we belong to it, and there's no cultural convention to say who may or may not study it, take delight in it, and make discoveries. I mean, she bypassed every form of convention of her time to have the life she had and make the discoveries she made. and. I think the other thing that's interesting is that people who are already in the margins of society in some way, or other in some way by the parameters of their time and place, have this lovely uh, self-permission to just be other in other ways as well. So she was already kind of excluded from so much that she just decided to pursue what she was passionate about because there was really no cost of failing. She, there was no real cost to her. She just could do it. And I find that very inspiring in, in general and in culture. Well, this has been wonderful talking with you today. Uh, thanks so much, Maria. I really appreciate this. Learning a little bit more about this amazing astronomer and uh, and the work you're doing too. It's really great. Thank you, Dean. Thank you for caring about this incredible person that uh, we owe so much to. Now, the one thing I can tell you about comet predictions is that comets are notoriously fickle things that astronomers think we know what uh, comets will do, but studying this in history tells me we have no idea. A comet could be said to be bright and then it just fades away, it doesn't happen, or never brightens up. And then others that you wouldn't expect to be bright suddenly brighten. I can give you a consolation prize. We have these things called meteor showers that happen every year. There's some famous ones, like in August, we have what's called the Perseid meteor shower, usually around August 12th and 13th, that's when it usually peaks. But the next big meteor shower that's coming up is called the Orionids. And that's gonna be on October 21st. Now you can see these uh, these meteors, these are like the shooting stars, your classic things that you see these lights shooting across the sky. Those are your meteors burning up in the atmosphere. And the Orionids in October are leftover pieces of a comet. Comet goes by, 
leaves the tail behind, leaves material tail, and then the earth runs into that tail material. And we can predict it every single year. It runs into this material. That's why we can have this every single year. And the meteors seem to radiate out of the constellation Orion. So that's why they call it the Orionids. But where does the Orionids come from? Well, it comes from Halley's Comet. So you might not be able to see Halley's Comet again until, what is it, oh, 2061. But you can see pieces of Halley's Comet every October in the Orionid meteor shower. For me, good excuse to go out and stargaze and do some uh, counting of shooting stars. Looking Up with Dean Regis is a production of Cincinnati Public Radio. Ella Rowan is our show producer, audio engineer, and comet connoisseur. Oh, man, and she also writes the copy for this, so she made me say comet connoisseur back-to-back. Hey, I did it twice. Our theme song is Possible Light by Ziv Moran. You can find full transcripts of every episode of Looking Up on our website. Just tap the link in our show notes. I'm Dean Regis, and keep looking up.